góðu farþegar verið velkomin heim. Klukkan er 15 mínútur í fjögur. Leir settjöndum á velkomt á Ísland. Welcome to Museums in Strange Places. I'm your host, Hannah Hethman, and this is a podcast for people who love museums, stories, culture, and exploring the world. This year, I'm living in Iceland, and in each episode, I visit a different Icelandic museum to discover what stories they hold and how they reflect and shape Iceland's unique cultural identity. flying quite often. And my family has been flying all over the world since I was little, so I'm used to it. But still, there is something so magical and surreal about watching cities and farms grow smaller as an unlikely flying machine launches you into the sky. In Iceland, air travel has been an important part of connecting this isolated island to both the American and European continents. In World War II, Because of Iceland's strategic location in the Atlantic, the Americans built the first international airport in Keflavik. But by then, Icelanders had already been taking to the skies for a few decades, using planes to search for fish and experimenting with commercial air travel. To learn more about the history of aviation in a country with notorious winds and winter weather, I drove a few hours north from Reykjavik to Akureyri to visit the Icelandic Museum of Aviation. A town of just over 18,000, Akureyri is often called the capital of North Iceland. It's the second largest urban area after Greater Reykjavik. So far in this podcast, I've stayed mostly in the southwest, but now it's time to start exploring other regions of Iceland. Despite being such a small country, the variety of landscapes, natural resources, and isolation caused by winter roads means each region has a unique history and identity that's reflected in their museums. The Icelandic Aviation Museum is located in a big hangar at the Akureyri Airport, which, like most of downtown Akureyri, sits on this narrow strip of land between the fjord, Eyjafjörður, and the steep slope of the foothills. The museum has 31 planes on display. Board member Hörður Gersson showed me around and shared some of the stories behind some of his favorites, uh, my name is Hörður Gerson, and I'm a chairman of the board here, and I'm a private pilot also, but uh, always been interested in flight and air, air in history. The the building now is uh, a steel steel structural building, a hangar, which is 2,200 square meters. 
we have um, uh, not so many planes that the museum actually owns. This is more like a platform to invite uh, different uh, owners to exhibit their, their planes. So we take everything more or less during the summer and fly in open fly days during, during the summer. So it's uh, alive because we have the airstrip here, be out, here outside the building. The Fokker here in the center is uh, more or less um, uh, everything uh, which is within it is unflyable. It's, it's a static display. But the other ones are uh, in the front are all airworthy. But uh, the oldest plane that we have here is a glider hanging here in the north end of the building. And it's a Gruno 9, which is, which is a German Nazi plane, actually. <laughs> Uh, the Germans came here during um, the years before for the war and uh, tried to gain sort of hearts and minds with, uh, with teaching or, or, or making the opportunity for uh, Icelandic uh, young people to learn to fly. And they uh, brought with them a kit. Everything that you see up there, all the black fittings, is all stamped with the Nazi signatures. So all the wood is, of course, uh, has been rebuilt again and again over the years. And this plane actually flew last in, in 2003 in, in its, and was airworthy at the time. <laughs> but now it's, it's such a relic that we don't want to uh, do it any harm. But this was actually shot uh, up by a rubber band, which is hanging on the wall over there. Oh my and God. so it needed, it needed six men, three on each one end of the, end of the, of the rubber band. And it made sort of a V in front of the glider. And uh, they had struggled with horses and all kinds of equipment to try to get the plane up on a high, high hill or whatever. Then there was a pilot sitting in the in this pilot seat. There was one commander who, who sort of commanded the, the flights, holding the wing. And one was sitting on the, on the earth, holding the tail. So when the commander said, run, they started to run in like a V-shape in front of the plane. And when the guy on the, holding it back in the, on the tail, screamed he couldn't hold it any longer he said loose and then they instead of going into a v-shape they went into more like split uh, to make uh, to shoot it up but the uh, flights were more like say, 20, 10 to 20 30 seconds so it's very short many flights were a stay but the most uh, most famous flight on this uh, particular plane was when the a um, later on um, chief uh, training captain of Iceland Air uh, told the story. He was learning to fly here in, in town. They were gliding on the on the old uh, part of Akureyri town. There, there are hills there in the old uh, above the old town by the churchyard. And uh, he took uh, he was he was shot from the top of the hill and and he could glide down to the lower part of the town. But and one at one time he was trying to gain height in the in the in the upstream up and he crashed it into an open grave. And the doctor when he not, knew that he was taking this man who had just slightly injured himself. He didn't want uh, any more people to go from... The, he was used to sending them the other way <laughs> to, the, to the grave, not the other one. So, um, but that was the most famous flight on this particular plane. But um, it's remarkable that we still have one in such an immaculate condition. Yeah, it, it looks perilous. It's, it's a very... Uh, there's not much going on there. <laughs> it's all open. Yeah. All open. Um, so tell me a little bit about the history of aviation in Iceland. When did people start uh, getting planes into the sky? And I can imagine with the crazy weather here and the mountains and the conditions, it was a very challenging place to get a system of aviation going around the country. 
You're absolutely right. It is very difficult to operate uh, anything to do with uh, airplanes and airfields. It started in 1919 when um, the first Iceland Air bought their uh, British um, Avro, from, which was a uh, fighter plane from, from England. It only operated two summers. They had the infrastructure in Iceland in 1919 was such was so poor that they didn't even have gasoline for they. I think they almost finished up the 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 only gasoline that was available at the time. They had different kinds of fluids to run the country, but not the the, the airplane fuel. Um, then the next uh, operation was in 1929 to 32, when uh, a German Junkers uh, planes from Lufthansa were rented uh, during the summer, used for passenger flying. The, the first one didn't do anything. They had only one passenger and and. Um, it, 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 that's why it went bankrupt. <laughs> but the second one could move passengers, um, had a lot of trouble, particularly with uh, un- unreliable engines. And um, they were also used for herring, searching for herring out on the open sea, high seas. And uh, th- that's always been a part of uh, operating small planes in Iceland and, and particularly early on, earlier on, looking for fish, herring. Which, which was like a gold, uh, was like a gold rush when when they had good years for the herring. That went bankrupt in '32, and the the last one, Iceland number three, was founded in '37. And you can see here the start of the placards here. Was yeah. the, 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 it was founded here in Akureyri, and and uh, lead, leading up to that, it, it is the it's still going on. The the uh, the investors in this first have have um, uh, have. Uh, they're financed in, in Iceland today, so it is continue has been continuing from 37. But the um, Icelandic operation in of flight in Iceland was difficult, uh, difficult to say the least, particularly during the winter and and summer operation also. Uh, not many fatalities, as only a handful of planes with a lot of passengers have, have been crashed in Iceland, which is unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, on the on the way over, we were talking about um, how many fa- the way there must have been. We're like there must have been so many, so many crashes in in this experiment. No, we've been very lucky. It was uh, after the war, uh, before the before the sixties and in, in the forties and fifties, they uh, there were two two big crashes. But after that, fortunately, we only had small planes uh, going down. Earlier on, the Americans, the uh, the chief of aviation in Iceland, he had a good connection both with Germany and particularly with the international uh, aviation um, authorities. He got the American uh, authorities to uh, half give us a, a navigation system, which was uh, is actually part of it, still operational in Iceland, with beacons sending out uh, so you could um, uh, fly blind flying with VFR. This changed everything. The condition with mountains and strong wind and new mountains had nothing to, this doesn't help with that. But it, at least people not, uh, they, they were not lost, can yeah. you say. <laughs> uh, so uh, the beacons helped a lot. The um, the one of the favorites is the helicopter here. It's a it's a French Dolphin Coast Guard uh, helicopter. It saved 280 lives 
it went into a crazy weather where nobody else was around and saved people. And there's still now and then we find we find flowers, vases of flowers, standing beside somebody coming here, not even talking to us, but laying flowers and yeah. thanking for the lives that this plane saved. It's a small plane, and it actually ended in the sea because one of the engines cut out and and it lost its power, and it couldn't hold itself uh, um, flying with one engine. But uh, nobody dies, and nobody injured. This is really sort of a important plane for uh, for our um, uh, little community or society here in Iceland and uh, important one to be able to keep here. You were telling me about a personal project of yours. Is this Correct. over here? Correct. Uh, during the war there was a huge uh, operation of British and American forces here in Iceland. And just before the Americans arrived in 1941, a huge battle, actually, a uh, uh, naval battle was, was fought here outside of the coast of Iceland with Bismarck and Hood. And Bismarck, the biggest German battleship, sank Hood outside of, of Reykjavik with 1,100 men dying with one bullet. Who uh, was the British ship? Yeah, the British ship of Hood. But when they were sure, because they knew, the Allies knew that the Bismarck was sailing out from Norway, north of Iceland, they tried to get every plane possible to search for Bismarck. And this particular plane, which I searched for, nine, searched for its wreck for 19 years, was flying just uh, the day before. It crashed, looking for Bismarck. They needed more um, airmen up in the south, and they took off from Selfoss, which was a small airport outside Selfoss. Uh, flew o over to Eiffel, took these two men on the on the right there, and they took off again, and they crashed into a, a little glacier with no name actually on the highlands here, to the um, to the uh, south and west of us. The uh, the British found the plane, uh, didn't find more uh, more or less anything of the human remains of the four men on board. Because you can see there on the bottom, there the, the situation up there was uh, there was like three to five meters of winter snow on the glacier top on top of the glacier. So more or less, the wreckage had disappeared into the winter snow, and they found it also a week later after they crashed. So they left everything there, just put up a cross, and the Brits went from Iceland just a month later, the squadron. So this was absolutely lost, and that's why I couldn't find anything. Uh, from the British sources or, or, or Icelandic, uh, where actually the plane was. So it so, so we, into a glacier. So we know that it disappeared in a glacier, and they saw it at some point in the glacier. They no, saw where it had gone be down? Before it went into the glacier. Oh, okay. And so you've been looking for how many years? I searched it for 19 years. For 1980, I found it in 1999. Oh, you found it? Yeah. Oh, cool. What does a search like that entail? How did you end up finding it? It was a sort of friend of mine who i have been sort of stubborn enough to go 13 trips up there, uh, searching again and again, just to keep fit, to get, get, not get fat, fat and lazy. <laughs> and um, and he was uh, going through a pile of papers in, in uh, London, because I, I went there to London to try to find, in National Archives there, to try to find the, the documents from the squadron, particular squadron. But his wife actually found a, a um, the report that was made of, of the search party, which found it. And on that, they had this old... Um, sort of like a navigation, like latitude and longitude 
of a military map system, the secret military map of the British at the time. So I had to get this, I got these um, numbers and the, uh, the old map and sort of had an old X, not X on an old map. And I actually, in 1980, I walked over the crash site, but I was on a, I was on a wrong t uh, season. It was in, in beginning of the summer. So the um, winter snow was covering everything, so it actually doesn't expose until the, until the fall. So um, in 1999, we went up there first hiking and then with a helicopter and police and a Coast Guard. And it was too late. It was into September. So the year after, in 2000, we uh, had a big expedition uh, with the British um, uh, Mountain Rescue Service uh, helping us and the embassy, and uh, even New Zealand Herald, which is the news biggest newspaper in New Zealand, pilot was from New Zealand, helping us finding relatives of the, of the deceased airmen. When we were actually going up, an American Seahawk, uh, like the Black Hawk rescue helicopter, came here and helped us, uh, getting us uh, the gear for us up, because we had only this little <laughs> helicopter I just mentioned, uh, which was so... Had, had lacked power in this height, in this altitude. But in 2003, we went again, and 2004, the third expedition up there. And um, every year, the American uh, on the base wanted to, to come and help. And particularly, fun story with this guy who came 2003, you can see his picture there. He was a major in, in Kevlovic um, Station, uh, he he outranked everybody over there. <laughs> he said he was. I think he was married to an Icelandic girl, and uh, he said, "I am going to fly this." And Stars and Stripes just made the news, and so it made the news all over their their um, internal news webs. So it has a huge uh, human interest. The story, and you can see there on the on the table there, uh, there are about three hundred news all over the world from China to South America. This went all over the world. I can talk all day about this, so don't <laughs> worry about it. <laughs> it's very interesting. We're also here with uh, the first jet that Iceland Air got in 1967. Uh, it's a Boeing um, uh, 727, and it was uh, custom-made for uh, Air Iceland. Uh, Air Iceland. At the time, and we we only have the nose here. It was in Arizona, had gone to the to the graveyard there, but we saved the uh, nose. It flew for 40 years, and the rest in the end for UPS. And uh, the only thing that still is is Icelandic in there is the initials on the on the toilet. It said uh, it says vacancy and löscht. Yeah, it, it means the same. Yeah, <laughs> everything else is gone. <laughs> And here we have a very immaculate example of a Piper Apache. It has been uh, refurnished inside out, and even the lining. You can see it's amazing to see inside the, to see the the seats. Have a look. You can see the cladding, the leather, and everything inside the plane is uh, brand new and uh, like it just just yeah. roll out to the factory. This is 1959. Yeah, it looks like it'd be in a like a, a fancy car from the era. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in immaculate it's condition. Yeah. And then there's a DC three. It's a it's a pri it's a private club actually that uh, owns it. The Icelandic state gave it, uh, used it for um, 
for 30 odd years to distributing fertilizer over the highlands. Mm. And uh, that's why it, it was saved in Iceland uh, and operated and maintained and so on. Now, uh, for 10 years, it has been in this uh, club, uh, the club, the DC3 friends are operating it. And it's a huge task, as you can imagine. Yeah. yeah. How old is that plane? It's 1943. And you can go inside and we are going to put seats into it and, uh, and uh, take passenger, hopefully. Ooh. Is, is this one open for people to go in? Yeah, this is the Coast Guard Fokker uh, F-27. Oh, cool. <laughs> this, this has radar. This was used for the Coast Guard to, 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 and du during the two uh, COD wars that we had with Britain. COD wars? Yeah. The COD wars are one of the most interesting things in modern Icelandic history, in my opinion. And I should note, also in the opinion of the current president of Iceland, who did his dissertation on the history of the Cod Wars. In the 1970s, Britain and Iceland found themselves in a bitter dispute over fishing rights in the waters around Iceland. Heather told me a bit more. You've not heard about that. The, the Cod Wars were about uh, the uh, going from uh, 50 miles to 200 miles of economic. Uh, like so international waters where people could fish right yeah our economic um, borders what's it called i don't know the english word doesn't come sorry about that i don't know <laughs> um the, the first we moved from 12 miles to 50 miles and then from 50 miles to 200 miles mm -hmm. in in 1976 and this plane participated in this quad war the the british they they put their battleships up here to fight our little gunboats and they had a secret weapon which cut uh, cut the trawler wires from the um, from the trolls. So the uh, the British cut the wires. No, the Icelandic little little gunboats. They were so maneuverable in between the um, and the British tried to sink the the little ships again and again. And this was a huge debate between us. But we are we are friends today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when we when won. when was this? When were these cod wars? The, the, the last one was in seventy six ish. Okay. Okay. So this Icelandic plane was used in this. This is kind of cool. You can, uh, just from like a attendee visitor perspective, you can walk all the way through this. This is the radar operator here. And this was also used for the government and the president. So so this was Air Force One <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or Airplane One in Iceland. And it was used for multi-purposes. Also moving, uh, jumping um, rescue people. They, had to, uh, they jumped out here for parachutes. And uh, they moved patients in, in national disasters here. Oh. Air Force One, fish wars, yeah, yeah, yeah. saving people, exactly. multi-multitasking. Yeah. This is just like every Icelander who also has like oh, three yeah. jobs, you yeah. know? No one just does one thing. <laughs> three is nothing. <laughs> Thanks for joining me on this adventure as I explore Iceland's many museums and get to know the fascinating people who run them. Music in this episode is by the Icelandic composer Ulvar Eldjarn and is from his latest release, The Aristocracia Project, which is a concept album about space travel, technology, AI, lost utopias, and the future of mankind.
If you liked this episode, please take a minute to review the podcast on iTunes or send me a tweet at Hannah underscore RFH. Reviews and social media shares help people with great tastes like you discover the Museums and Strange Places podcast. If you want to see pictures of the museum, find out more about their airplanes, see videos of harrowing flights in Iceland, and more, check out my website at hethman.com. That's H-H-E-T-H-M-O-N.com.